0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: From us this week, thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Welcome everyone to episode 62 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean, on my lonesome today, the first time in 62 episodes that Chloe and I just couldn't get our schedules to line up, so here I am and I've got an interesting but sad one for you all to wrap your ears around today. Gonna hold off on any Patreon shoutouts until next episode and jump straight into things. As per usual folks, this case contains distressing content ...discussing crimes against children, sexual assault and drug use. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so please look after yourself if you choose to listen to this episode. Today I'll be continuing on from where we finished last episode in the Russell Street bombing. This is very much a part two, so hit pause, go back and listen to that if you haven't already... It'd even pay to listen to the case before that on the bigger Schoolgirls for additional context as we're going to see some links. And we often talk about the broader effect these crimes have, the people who are impacted on the periphery. This case today is very much an example of that, allegedly. Now I say allegedly because there's certain aspects of this that have been proven and some which remain allegations and speculation. A quick browse on homely.com.au and you'll see mixed reviews of Glenroy, an inner Melbourne suburb 13 kilometres north of the CBD. The working class area is commented by some inhabitants as being unsafe, with untidy streets and poor amenities, dappled with hastily constructed townhouses that feel as if they're made of cardboard. On the flip side... Other residents note the exceptional location and proximity to the CBD and Tullamarine Airport, combined with the up-and-coming retail sector and relatively affordable residential market, and Glenroy for many presents a prime opportunity. Whatever the case nowadays, back in 1992, both of these points of view were probably true. It was still in the same spot, positioned nicely in Melbourne's suburban sprawl, It was also home to government housing and the average blue-collared punter looking for a leg up in life. And it's here where the Bird family lived, in a commission house at the end of Justin Avenue, a small park with electricity pylons flanking one side of the road and a little milk bar providing the everyday essentials on the other. Sunday, 2nd of February, 1992, approximately 2pm. Prue awoke well after midday on this warm summer's day. Her mum, Jenny and younger sister Amanda had already left home, headed to the local swimming pool. Prue would meet them there after something to eat. Prue had gotten home just before 11pm the night before, having attended a party nearby. Her mum knew better than to wake her, Prue was not a morning person. As Prue warmed up some creamed corn on the stove, her go-to meal in a hurry, her mum's partner, Izzy, potted about the place, packing some of her things. She was in the middle of moving out, and a pair of her friends had arrived to lend a hand. As Izzy and her friends toed and froed from the garage, carrying boxes and the like, the phone rang. It was a young boy for Prue. Some half an hour later, Izzy heard the phone ring again, and assumed Prue answered it. As Prue's corn heated up on the stove, Izzy's friends left to retrieve a trailer and Izzy returned to the garage. When Izzy's friends returned with the trailer, she wandered back to the house to say goodbye to Prue and as she did, noticed the front door was open. Inside, the TV was blaring and a plate of warmed creamed corn was on the coffee table, untouched. But Izzy couldn't see Prue. He was gone, banished into thin air. Prue Bird was 13 years old at this time, soon to turn 14. She was in year 8 at Glenroy High and she wanted to be a makeup artist. Prue was a leader, adventurous and mature, the Michael Jackson poster on her wall, one of the few clues hinting at her true age. Prue's mum Jenny and her partner, Isabel Teatini, or simply Izzy, had been together for a short amount of time but the change in circumstances with Jenny and Benny Bird having separated some time before that had been hard for Prue. So while they were still together at this time, Jenny and Izzy had agreed that it'd be best for Izzy to move out for a little bit while Prue adjusted. But now Izzy moving out was the least of Jenny Bird's concerns as Izzy relayed Prue's disappearance and Jenny, unworried at first, began putting the feelers out to see where her daughter might have gotten to. After a while, Jenny felt something was off. While Prue was certainly the independent, break the rules type of teenager at this stage, there were things that she simply wouldn't do. Not showering, doing her hair or changing her clothes were the first signs to Jenny. Prue was always well-groomed. She wouldn't willingly leave home like that. Secondly, her school books had been dumped out of her bag. The bag itself was gone, but nothing else had been taken with the exception of a pair of pants. When it all hit home that something was clearly amiss, Jenny contacted the police and reported Prue missing. Officers from the Missing Persons Unit called around to the house to discuss things with Jenny. But despite the irregularities, the hot meal left on the coffee table, the officers thought this was most likely a case of a typical teenager. They all do things like this and come back within a day or two. The Missing Persons Unit back at this time in 1992 wasn't what it is today. We're not talking about an offshoot of the seasoned homicide squad here. We're talking about a couple of detectives, some junior officers as needed, and maybe some civilian administrators. A different time. The police's response to begin with was somewhat understandable considering this aspect. There was no evidence of a crime at this stage, despite Jenny and her family's insistence something was wrong. There was no blood located, no signs of a struggle. What raises eyebrows in this case, though, was two major factors that appeared to be quickly discounted, if not completely overlooked. Firstly, the missing persons detectives located a single 22 bullet on Prue's bedroom floor. Jenny didn't have any guns or ammunition in the house, and she regularly vacuumed the floor. The second and most obvious thing was Jenny's indirect link back to an incident some six years earlier in 1986 a now infamous attack on Victoria Police, on Russell Street in Melbourne's CBD. Here, on Easter Thursday, a homemade bomb had gone off in a Holden Commodore, blasting the surrounding area. It injured 22 people, three seriously, and one, a young police officer named Angela Taylor, died from her wounds. The main perpetrators had since been jailed, the details of which we covered in last episode. Jenny Bird never thought this attack would directly impact her or the lives of her children in any way, but it was a real possibility, one that wasn't taken particularly seriously at this time in 1992. And it's at this point we have to wind back the clock and take some time to not only look at Jenny's life to this point, but at her mother Julie's past as well to give us the full context as to what might have led to the current circumstances. Jenny Bird grew up in Grand Place, West Brunswick, and there were plenty of fights in the family home. Jenny was the eldest daughter to Julie and Jim. She had three younger siblings, and they all learned from a very young age not to make mum angry. That's when she got violent. Julie burnt Jenny's brother's fingers on the stove one time, she often did the housework completely naked, and on another occasion, she smashed a wall clock over Jim's head. Julie blamed these episodes on Jim and the drinking and that they had no money. And she supplemented that kind of stuff with what Jenny later described as mental manipulation. You're my firstborn, I depend on you, etc. Jenny moved out at 17. She had a good job and a solid boyfriend named Terry. Soon enough, the couple fell pregnant and had little prudence nine months later. But sadly, just 12 months into her young life, Prue lost her father, Terry, when he died in a dune buggy accident. Jenny, obviously devastated, picked up the pieces and moved on best she could. A couple of years later, she met Benny Bird. He adopted Prue, becoming her father figure, and the couple went on to have two more children, Amanda and Adam. Jenny's mum, Julie, had since left gym and developed a taste for bad boys. She'd began associating with some rather colourful characters, to put it mildly, Julie had been seeing a bloke named Kevin Taylor. In the late 70s, Julie visited him at Pentridge Prison, where he was serving time for shooting the Painters and Dockers Union boss, Pat Shannon. Kevin Taylor later became even more well-known for being the guy who, under instruction, sliced Mark Chopper Reed's ears off inside H Division, so Chopper would be taken to the relative safety of the infirmary amidst a fiery prison war. A tale for another episode, maybe. But at this time, Julie was visiting Kevin Taylor when another young prisoner in the yard caught her eye. Paul Hetzel, 10 years Julie's junior, was a charming and violent young man serving time for armed robbery and shooting a policeman. One day, he wolf-whistled at Julie as she walked out of Pentridge, calling out obscenities and detailing his lustful thoughts. Hetzel later received a telegram from Julie, reciprocating his sordid and explicit words. Paul Hetzel is a name we're very familiar with, having been a member of Stan Taylor's crew of miscreants discussed in the previous episode, those connected to Russell Street. And we're going to talk more about Paul Hetzel in this episode, because there's much more to the man than him simply being the guy who did the right thing and turned crown witness at trial. That trial ended up in the convictions of both Stan Taylor, Hetzel's mentor, and Craig Minogue, Hetzel's violent associate for the bombing itself, and Peter Reid for Associated Matters. Rodney Minogue, however, had his conviction quashed and was now out on the streets at this time. Julie, going by her then married name of Finlay, soon became Julie Hetzel as she and Paul began a relationship. Paul Hetzel had served plenty of time in jail. He knew the system, how to manipulate it, and how to manipulate people. He was a very cunning man, well-versed in armed robbery and blowing safes. When he got himself out of prison in 1981, he went straight and tried to distance himself from his previous life. Or did he? Paul Hetzel, after all, was regarded as a borderline psychopath – Charming to all outward appearances when he wanted to be, but potentially menacing otherwise. This was a guy who'd robbed his own parents and threatened to kill his sister. All of this seemed to have some kind of appeal to Julie. Maybe her life hadn't been too exciting to this point. She was a clean skin, though, perfect for Paul Hetzel. Julie could open bank accounts, get credit, and apply for leases. She could also hold a gun license and buy firearms. She could and did buy Paul's suits and briefcases, which he always carried around with a gun inside. Jenny and her siblings didn't blame Julie for moving on with her life, but it was seemingly less than a sideways move. Paul Hetzel was quite frightening to them. One night, he arrived home with a smashed headlight and blood on the bonnet of his car. A simple wombat accident, Paul said, before asking a relative to help him move the wombat during the middle of the night and hastily obtaining an alibi. So this poor old wombat had ignorantly run afoul of Paul Hetzel, who in this instance was able to put another of his self-professed talents to use, disposing of bodies, something he'd honed during his criminal life alongside an acquired knowledge of robbery, explosives, safe-cracking, and learning the best way to murder people without getting caught. His words, As we know, it was inside Pentridge that Paul Hetzel formed a friendship with Stan Taylor. This friendship resumed 18 months after Hetzel got out, during which time he'd been moving around rural Victoria with Julie. And Paul Hetzel later commented he was just too weak to say no to Stan Taylor, but his actions at the time seemed to indicate he was a willing participant, at least at first he was. The crew of animals consisting of Hetzel, Taylor, The Minogue brothers and maybe Peter Reid went on a crime spree, robbing country hotels to begin with before graduating to knock over banks. Craig Minogue was a big, powerful and violent young man who liked to instil fear into his victims during these robberies, hitting them over the heads and kicking them thereafter. Rodney was half his brother's size and much more of a follower. This was the crew that Paul Hetzel fell in with and who he accustomed Julie to. And despite the tensions Jenny had with her mum, it was still important to her that Prue and her grandmother had a relationship, even if they weren't best friends. Jenny wasn't a fan of Paul Hetzel. She knew there was something off about the whole thing. You know, they had money when they both didn't work, so it wasn't rocket science. But Jenny had no idea of the depths of Paul Hetzel's criminality at this point. During this time, Prue would go and stay with her grandmother and Paul at whatever rural location they were living, so Prue too was exposed to this crew of animals. What Prue went through during these visits probably isn't fully known, but we do know that Julie was quite happy to watch her granddaughter be subjected to some less than average behaviour. One such time, when Prue was just seven, She was handcuffed naked to another boy her own age in the shower by none other than Stan Taylor. It's not a stretch to imagine other things Prue might have seen, heard or even had done to her. But according to Paul Hetzel, this was no big deal as the criminal code applied, you know, you didn't hurt women or children. That was the rule. So he wasn't too concerned. That was until the events of the Russell Street bombing took place, at which time Stan Taylor and Craig Minogue visited the Hetzels at their property in Birchup. As we covered last episode, this is allegedly when Craig Minogue threatens Julie and Paul Hetzel by saying words along the lines of the following, if any bastard even thought about going to the cops about us, they'll be killed and so will their fucking families. And if we don't get them, our mates will. It will be a shame if anything happened to your sweet little prue, wouldn't it? Julie said they wouldn't say a word, which we know wasn't what happened, Paul Hetzel said pretty much every word he knew, and he turned crowned witness at trial, aiding significantly in the conviction of his former friends. Paul Hetzel tells the story that he was basically given the ultimatum to turn rat or go down for the murder of a policewoman and a bombing he says he didn't commit. Others, such as my favourite crime journalist Andrew Rule, tend to paint a slightly different picture suggesting there was most likely a race to inform and Paul Hetzel simply got there first, ahead of his pals, and was potentially more involved than he makes out. And it was at this subsequent trial that this news of the threat against Prue came out, which is an important point. I think if the alleged threat came out much later, after Prue's disappearance, it mightn't have meant as much. After the trial finished, Paul and Julie were put into witness protection and moved over to Western Australia. Here, they basically cut themselves off from everyone they knew. At least, that's how they told it. They still managed to have a friend they'd known for some time live with them. His name was Morrie. Morrie lived in a caravan on the property. And Prue and her cousin Natasha still went to visit them on occasion. So, I'm not sure how well the Hetzels adhered to these witness protection rules. Not great, from the sounds, because in jail... Stan Taylor caught wind of where they were, and or roughly anyway, and he sent a couple of his buddies from the outside to find and kill Paul Hetzel. These guys were named Michael Williams and Wally Wilgos. They didn't find him in the end, but the intent was clearly there. 1991 now, and Prue had turned 13. Jenny had left Benny Bird a little while back and began this relationship with Izzy. Prue wasn't particularly happy about this relationship. She wanted to leave home, and she did, flying across to WA, just outside of Kalgoorlie, where Nan and Pa Hetzel were living in witness protection. Paul Hetzel agreed they'd have Prue, but it had to be for 12 months. That was the minimum period. An odd stipulation. When Jenny called Prue for a quick chat a little while into her stay, Jenny said Prue sounded strained and moody. So Paul and Julie told her not to ring Prue as a result to give her some space. She'd get about six weeks of space until the Hetzels ventured back to Melbourne to try and sell some gold. They were still scheming for a buck, even in witness protection. Julie told Jenny they were coming back but only briefly for this trip and Prue would stay with her friend Melissa, not at home with her mum. Well, turned out Prue didn't want that. Soon as she saw Jenny, she grabbed her and said, Mum, I don't want to go back. He's nuts. Jenny was scared of what Paul and Julie's reaction might be to this, and indeed, Paul was angry. When they got back to WA, he rang Jenny and said, Prue had caused nothing but problems, and she was nothing more than a little slut. Prue was good as gold at home for the next couple of weeks, but then she sort of began to go off the rails again. She switched schools and resumed psychological counselling, which she'd initially had a few years back. As Christmas in 1991 approached, Paul Hetzel called up the birds and made a strange offer for Jenny to come over and have Christmas with them, but she should come alone and leave Prue at home with Izzy. Jenny ended up going for Christmas, but she took Izzy with her while Prue stayed with friends in Melbourne. Jenny and Izzy returned in late January, coming up with the plan to Izzy to move out, which would give... Prue some time to adjust. They weren't going to break up, just give her some space on this front. But it'd only be two short weeks later that Prue disappeared. Prue was last seen at her home in Justin Avenue, Glenroy, on the 2nd of February 1992, around 10 past 2 in the afternoon. She was described as having ginger coloured hair, hazel eyes, 160 centimetres or 5 foot 2 inches tall, thin build, wearing blue jeans, a t shirt, black shoes, and possibly with a backpack. I won't recap the events of the morning as we know what happened and what the detectives found and said to Jenny, but I do want to run through other people's movements and actions on the day of Prue's disappearance. Jenny had an early start because she had to run an errand for Paul Hetzel. She'd seen Prue late the night before when Prue returned from the uh, aforementioned party. They bumped into each other at the fridge where Prue was getting a drink of cordial. Jenny told Prue of her plans to run this errand in the morning and that she'd be back to go to the local pools. Prue said no worries, but not to wake her, finishing with an I love you mum, which Jenny reciprocated, a memory she would later cling to. Despite the Hetzels being in WA at this time, Paul still rented a farmhouse in the rural town of Yark, and that's where Jenny was headed this morning to replace a padlock on a storeroom door for him. Yark's a reasonable drive from Glenroy, probably a couple of hours northeast or just under that. Jenny ran this errand and came back home, where Izzy was in the process of moving out. Then Jenny got a phone call from her friend, Christine Spalding. Christine was Jenny's oldest and dearest friend at this time, and she'd been trying to get hold of Jenny all morning, even ringing Julie in Western Australia at one stage to see if the farmhouse had a phone she could call her on. Christine turns out, had some kind of premonition that something was wrong, something bad had or was going to happen. Jenny talked with Christine, checked Prue in bed, and then went to the pools, assuring Christine that everything was okay. Meanwhile, Izzy was packing and she had a couple of friends helping out. This was Ray York and Sharon Brown. The trio had a cup of coffee, saying hi to Prue, and left it around quarter to two to go and borrow a trailer for Izzy. As Prue took the pair of phone calls we mentioned, then sat down to eat in front of the TV, Izzy returned to the garage. When Izzy's friends returned around 2.30, they went inside and Prue was no longer there. When Jenny returned home, Izzy told her Prue had gone. She did all the things you'd expect, calling friends, family. She phoned Prue's best friend, Melissa, and Prue wasn't with her. It took a couple of calls to the police to get them to come out. Later that evening, a divvy van with two uniformed officers from Broadmeadows attended. One of these officers had dealt with the Russell Street bombers in the past. Jenny and the rest of her family were obviously concerned this was something to do with Russell Street, some kind of reprisal, but police appeared reluctant to link the two at the time. At least upper management specifically appeared to hold that view, not so much the ground troops. The Hetzels were called the following morning about Prue's disappearance, to which Paul Hetzel replied, what the hell do you expect us to do all the way over here? Jenny expected her mum to be on the next flight over, but it took her one week to make the trip. When Julie arrived, she began interrogating Jenny, walking in with a pen and notepad and quizzing her daughter about when she left the house, where Izzy was, etc., Paul Hetzel was even more extreme, saying to Jenny, what the fuck are you crying for? And, in reference to where Prue might be, she's probably out getting her ass fucked off. Neither of the Hetzels were shedding any tears, to say the least, as they formed the belief that Prue had likely run off of her own accord. Paul then dropped Julie at the farmhouse in Yark, while he took off with his buddy Mori, who'd come across from WA2, to a property that Morrie owned in Dalesford, and they went up there for a week. Meanwhile, Jenny and her two younger children were left to deal with their missing daughter and sister. The police seemed to think this was a runaway case too. They weren't listening to anything suggesting this could be connected with Russell Street. And the Hetzels were now starting to suggest that Izzy had something to do with Prue's disappearance, something Julie would uh, later retract and sort of apologise for. It was six weeks until the head of the Missing Persons Unit, Detective Chris Jones, visited the Bird family. He assessed Jenny Bird as an extremely genuine person. She was very down-to-earth and forthcoming in conversation. Easy, too, uh, was cleared as having any involvement in Prue's disappearance. The details around that weren't clear, but I'd imagine her friends being around for strong alibi evidence would have helped greatly. Any suspicions Chris had about Jenny and Izzy soon dissipated and inquiries moved outside of the inner circle. While Jenny was busy putting up missing persons posters, contacting the media and following up her own leads, Chris Jones was trying to escalate the matter to the homicide squad. But this was declined and he was told to keep on it and let them know if he found anything. And that was the problem. There were just too many avenues of inquiry, too many crooks potentially involved in this, for him and a couple of other detectives to look into. A task force was really needed, but it wasn't provided. In the time following this, the investigation really honed in on the Hetzels. Their property was searched, which insulted them greatly, and this caused a big rift between Jenny and her mum and Paul. The Hetzels thought, you know, what right did Jenny have accusing them of wrongdoing while simultaneously deflecting blame onto Izzy? And this led to Jenny basically cutting her mum Julie out of her life. And it was now that we'd see a few interesting clues crop up. A couple of weeks before Prue went missing, she was at home with a friend who we'll call Donna, that's not her real name, and there was a knock at the door. Prue answered and came back moments later, white as a ghost. And she said, that guy was really weird. That was weird. He asked something about the uh, car outside, if it was Daniel's, which it wasn't, there was no Daniel there. Donna later walked home down the street, and a car drove past her. The man driving smiled and waved, but he passed and Donna kept walking, thinking nothing of it. Then the guy doubled back to Yui and began curb crawling alongside Donna, staring intently at her now. Donna hoofed it to a nearby friend's house, quick as you like. She later called Prue and described the man in the car and between the two of them, they figured out it was the same guy who'd come to the door earlier and given Prue that weird vibe. Then there was another strange report. Jenny herself had made this to the police. About a week after Prue had disappeared, Jenny was outside on the street when a white car drove past quite slowly and the man inside was giving her a death stare, she said. Jenny reported this at the time, but it wasn't until Detective Chris Jones came along that she was shown a photo book of people to see if she recognised one of them as the driver. Jenny pointed out someone in the book, and police were stunned and intrigued to see that she'd pointed out Rodney Minogue. Suspicion around Rodney potentially being involved really took off at this stage, and if there was ever a time for the case to be escalated to homicide, it was now, but again, Somewhere in the police command, that suggestion was shut down. One possible innocent explanation was that a friend of the Minogue's had actually moved into the Birds street at this time, so Rodney's visit could have been completely genuine. It appeared the bombers could have orchestrated this from behind bars, their previous threats manifesting some six years later when the heat had died down. The Birds and the Hetzels weren't seemingly too hard to find, but then again, why would they? why wouldn't they go after Paul Hetzel himself? He certainly seemed to be keeping active, gallivanting all over the countryside with his pal Morrie these rural properties, storage containers and gold prospecting schemes. And that begged the question, what had they been up to and who really was this pal (coughs) Morrie? Jeannie Bird knew Morris Marion as the cheerful chap who ran the canteen. She had no idea that he was a perverted, convicted rapist and armed robber. Like Stan Taylor, Morris Marion was a charming crook who sought out bit-part acting jobs after serving hard jail time in the 70s and 80s. He even appeared on Blue Heelers at one time. Marion had robbed at least 11 banks. He'd abducted and sexually assaulted women, one in her home while her children were asleep before locking her in a cupboard. A fingerprint left behind on that occasion led to Marion's undoing. This was a violent guy who lured women to secluded spots with intent to do harm, he held guns to women's heads as they cowered during armed robberies, this was a man who got around with a balaclava in his pocket, just in case. But like his charming contemporaries in Stan Taylor and Paul Hetzel, Morris Marion appeared rehabilitated on the outside, and went to work with his old prison pal Hetzel in a seemingly less violent and risky criminal enterprise, stealing gold, then processing the ore to sell interstate, claiming to have mined it themselves like honest prospectors. Jenny's younger sister had even had a fleeting relationship with Morris Marion until he raped her, that was. The following morning, Jenny's sister was plunged further into upset when both Julie and Paul joked about the incident having obvious knowledge of what had happened. Jenny's sister's stories, alongside Jenny's observations, painted a vivid picture of not just Marion, but Paul Hetzel too, noting their obvious interest in girls much younger than themselves and constant lewd comments, not just implying, but directly stating their sickest thoughts. The question for Jenny, which she later posed to the police, became, was Morris Marion involved in taking Prue? And even darker, did Paul Hetzel himself have some involvement or at least some knowledge of it? In the latter case, it depends on which version of Paul Hetzel you buy into, but it's certainly conceivable a sycophant like Mariam was capable of such an act. The guy had a noted proclivity for younger women and the criminal record to back it up. According to Prue's counsellor, she had displayed some signs of possible abuse from her time in WA, It was all enough for police to search Morris Marion's Dalesford property, where they searched the house and three dams. They didn't find anything linking to Prue, but they did find a rather sick pornographic video that Marion had filmed of a young woman in which a screwdriver was used in a manner I don't need to describe. Marion, however, refused to participate in a formal record of interview with the police. Paul and Julie were hauled in to speak about Morris Marion and while they didn't go on the record with anything that could be used in evidence against him, they did provide some interesting information. Prue refused to be alone with Morris Marion after she'd gone mushrooming with him one time in WA. When they'd come back to Victoria, she also refused to go in the car with him. Paul also handed over a twenty two Smith & Wesson revolver Marion had given him since Prue's disappearance, but... Checks showed this hadn't been used in any known crimes. Other things investigators discovered made Morris Marion look even more suspicious. He'd been seen driving near the bird household in the weeks before Prue disappeared, something he said was common for him. He travelled through the area. But he'd also been on his way to the bird's house a few times to drop off some of Prue's belongings from her time in WA. He was actually on his way there at the time she disappeared, but for vague, unexplained reasons, Marion never actually went there and dropped Prue's things off. A couple of other strange things had investigators looking sideways at Marion. He'd withdrawn $200 from an ATM in Glenroy nine days before Prue disappeared. It proved he was in the area around the time, but then again, that wasn't uncommon, according to him. Another link was that Marion had $300 deposited into his account the day after Prue disappeared. This had been deposited by someone, we don't know who for sure, but it was deposited at a bank in Kalgoorlie. We know Paul Hetzel was living near Kalgoorlie at the time, so it's quite possible he deposited those funds, but we don't know if he did for sure or why. An underworld rumour persisted around this time and it interested the police a great deal. And this rumour came from a criminal who'd known both Hetzel and Marion for years, but had had a falling out with them. This guy claimed that the pair had abducted Prue, killed her and dissolved her body in a vat of acid. It was a sickening rumour that Paul categorically denied. The pair did have access to bulk amounts of acid apparently, with this gold ore scam they had going on. But other than these small pieces of information that may or may not have meant something Police really didn't have much of a case against either of the men. One other little interesting point I wanted to touch on about Morris Marion. There was another witness sighting the afternoon of Prue's disappearance. A guy named Robert O'Brien was at Broadmeadows Park when he saw an XC Falcon sedan fly out of the driveway with a noticeably distressed young woman in the front seat. The driver was a man in a black t-shirt with reddish hair and a pot belly, which roughly described Morris Marion. O'Brien was creeped out of what he saw and made the report. When police were later looking into Marion, they discovered he knew a woman in nearby West Meadows who had two properties, both of which he could have accessed. These properties were searched, but no evidence was located linking to Prue. The first thing that jumped into my head when I read that was Mr. Cruel. He was described as having potentially brownish reddish hair and a pot belly. He also held two of his victims under that flight path, Broadmeadows Westmeadows. That's right in that spot, close to Tullamarine, where he also videotaped his victims. In the Herald Sun dossier, we read out in part two of the Mr. Cruel episode, one of these suspects lived in Dalesford at the time of the attacks. We know Marion had a property in that area in 1992 and ticks a few boxes when it comes to offending history, so I wonder whether he is that suspect in the dossier. Interestingly, the Herald Sun also noted that this suspect had since changed his name via deed poll twice since this time. Last we heard of Morris Marion, he was living in Townsville under the close eye of local authorities. Paul Hetzel has remained busy over the years too, serving a couple of sentences for drug-related offences in Queensland, but any theories that Paul Hetzel and or Morris Marion were involved in Prue's disappearance subsided as the case grew cold. Then they were blown out of the water in 2009 when a $500,000 reward for information leading to a conviction in Prue's case was announced by Victoria Police. Jenny had seen a $1 million reward on offer for the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Membry. Jenny jumped on the phone and asked the same for Prue's case. Best police could do was half that, take it or leave it. Jenny took it, obviously, and lo and behold, some information came out from within prison walls. And this is where we see things link back to the case of the biggest schoolgirl murders a couple of episodes ago. Five years after Prue disappeared, Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett had brutally assaulted and murdered teenagers Nicole Collins and Lauren Barry. At this time in 2009, Camilleri was serving out his life sentence, never to be released, when all of a sudden police got word that he'd been opening his mouth behind bars, confessing to some form of involvement in Prue's case. He'd mentioned something to a fellow inmate and a family member over the phone, apparently. It was enough for police to pay him a visit. Police were understandably sus at why Camilleri was coming forward about this now, completely out of the blue. Probably in some roundabout way, someone might have figured out how they could get their hands on that reward money by pinning a guy who wasn't going to get out anyway, but that's a whole other podcast diving down that rabbit hole. What we do know is that Detective Senior Sergeant Brent Fisher went and had a chat with Camilleri, at which time he gave a limited confession, a half-baked version of what happened. Camilleri said he'd taken Prue off the street by himself, for the primary reason that he believed Prue's father had molested him as a child. But when he tried to talk to Prue about this, She wouldn't discuss it with him, so Camilleri tied her up and strangled her, not realising at first that uh, she was dead. He figured that out later while driving around before he disposed of her body. At first he couldn't recall where he dumped Prue's body, but he later gave the location of the Frankston tip. Apparently he'd buried another body there too, that of a, a guy who'd also abused him as a child. Camilleri claimed he drove his car to the tip, removed the distributor cap to make it look abandoned, then he cut a hole in the fence before dragging the bodies into the tip. Not only were these admissions strange, they were also inconsistent. Camilleri said he'd gone through bush to get the bodies to the tip, but the tip itself was next to a sports oval. It wasn't surrounded by scrub. He also said he hadn't seen any houses while he was there, but the tip was within a residential area where many homes could be seen. Also, he said he'd taken Prue himself off the street. That was inconsistent with the looks of things that, you know, maybe someone had taken her from inside the house. Police searched the tip, bushland at Flat Rock Creek in Far East Gippsland and Fiddler's Green Creek after these locations were discussed with Camilleri, but they located no sign of Prue's remains. So at this stage... I'm not sure police knew what to make of Leslie Camilleri's confession. It wasn't really holding water, he didn't seem to know where the body was, and what were his motivations for coming forward now? Was he even involved, or was this some sort of false confession for notoriety? Detective Fisher found it hard to get a full read on Camilleri, who'd been through the rigours of the prison system in the past 10 years he converted to Islam and sat there with his beads in hand, speaking in a mild manner, looking every bit of the 10 or 11 years older since he'd been convicted of the Bega case. But just as the doubt was setting in for detectives, information would come to light that corroborated the possibility that Leslie Camilleri was there that day and was involved in Prue's abduction. Donna, Prue's friend we mentioned earlier, identified Camilleri as the guy who had followed her in the car, at least a guy extremely consistent with his appearance. She saw him in the paper and got that same sick feeling. This also confirmed he was most likely the weird guy who had come to Prue's door in the weeks before her abduction. Secondly, a neighbour of the birds in Justin Avenue came forward at this point when she saw renewed media interest in the case – This was almost 18 years later by this time and she reported to police that on the day of Prue's disappearance, she'd seen Prue in the back of a car outside her home. It was a small light blue car and Prue was in the back rapping on the window. The neighbour thought Prue was simply waving to her, but obviously later she came to realise Prue was probably asking for help. Prue was eventually driven away by two men, one who matched Camilleri's description. She also reported seeing a third man fraternising with them. He was in another car, though, and left separately. So this aspect was very interesting. It backed up some aspects of Camilleri's version, at least his involvement, but it was also casting serious shade on his assertion that he'd acted alone. The witness later said that she'd been too scared to come forward to the police at the time. The big question now was, how did Camilleri link with all of this? And the answer was in degrees of separation and the vast, insidious nature of crime. It was established that Les Camilleri had a friendship with a guy in Melbourne named Mark McConville. He'd come down to Melbourne and do all kinds of bad things with and for McConville, their association being largely centred on drugs, obtaining them for both himself and to sell, probably, Mark McConville was a seriously bad guy. He was dead at this point in 2009, had been for about six years after years in prison and abusing amphetamines. But on the outside, he had associations with some of Melbourne's worst, including the likes of slain gangland figure and alleged Wall Street police shooter Victor Pierce and hitman Rodney Collins, who was an extremely dangerous man. McConville and Collins had been implicated in the brutal 1987 murders of West Heidelberg couple Ramon and Dorothy Abbey. Collins was later convicted. McConville beat the rap and was acquitted. We could talk more about that case and Mark McConville for an entire episode. and um, We might do so, but for now, his connection to Prue Bird's case was getting more solid. McConville drove a small, light blue Ford laser at the time, which matched the description of the car seen by witnesses outside the bird home. Alongside stitching together Camilleri and McConville's connection, police were able to ascertain two other aspects. Firstly, they could loosely connect McConville to associations with the Russell Street Bombers, who exactly and how we don't know for sure. But a key witness who knew McConville well came forward at this stage too and provided compelling evidence of his involvement. Her testimony would come out in detail at trial as Les Camilleri was charged for Prue's murder, despite not choosing or being unable to point police to Prue's body. Camilleri pleaded guilty, but the prosecution still had a case to outline against the man. They didn't allege payback as a motive and try to connect things back to Russell Street. That couldn't be proven beyond reasonable doubt, and it was clear Camilleri was going to lengths not to implicate anyone else, even the deceased Mark McConville, and he might have changed his guilty plea had they pursued this. Camilleri wasn't an idiot. you know. He knew enough to put himself in it and put the rap on the case, but you know, he didn't want to get killed in jail. Uh, self-preservation would have still been his motivating factor here, so that's possibly a big reason as to why he didn't grass on anyone. But prosecutors didn't buy Camilleri's tale in its entirety, and they pretty convincingly linked Mark McConville. The bulk of the prosecution case was built around three key witnesses. Witness M, who we call Donna, Prue's friend, she identified Camilleri as the driver of the car and had probably attended the house. Witness L, who was the neighbour we mentioned that came forward after 18 years, she confirmed the car being McConville's blue Ford Laser Prue being in the car under duress and being driven away by the two men, an unidentified third nearby. And finally, the all-important Witness Kay. She'd been in a relationship with Mark McConville, and at the time she was actually living with him. She claimed that both Camilleri and McConville had done this for someone else. She'd been in the car with them a number of occasions, trawling the streets of Glenroy looking for Prue Bird hearing the words payback mentioned a number of times, alongside words to the effect of having to bump her off and if we don't do this, we're fucked. Witness K also told a story of waking up in a shed one day, feeling lethargic, as if drugged. This shed was in Ascot Vale at a relative of McConville's and around her she saw a bed, you know, a kettle, there was piles of junk, linen on the windows to act as curtains, shelves full of paint tins... McConville apparently lived in this tin shed at this time, but he'd chained Witness K up for some perceived things she'd done wrong. After she came to, Witness K noticed a slim young teenager was also chained up. He was quite distressed and upset, scared, and just wanted to go home to her mum. Her description left no one in doubt that this was Prue Bird. Witness K was terrified of McConville, and when her and Prue discussed the possibility of escaping through a window in the shed, Witness K convinced Prue not to try this. It would just upset him even more, and he'd eventually let them go. Unfortunately, Witness K was the only one to get released. When she awoke the following day, Prue was gone. Her story was rigorously cross-examined, with the defence pointing out her past of amphetamine use and accusing her of lying about being unaware of the reward on offer. But Witness K insisted she was telling the truth, which, if she was, gave a chilling insight into what happened to Prue in the time after her abduction, before she was ultimately murdered. Jenny Bird gave a moving victim impact statement, which I won't read as it's quite upsetting, but essentially she pleaded directly to Camilleri to reveal the location of Prue's body, hoping that he had a sliver of decency inside him still. He didn't. Leslie Camilleri was given another life sentence, which didn't mean much as he was already serving life without the possibility of parole. But the theory remained that it was Craig Minogue, or maybe even the now-deceased Stan Taylor who had ordered this from behind bars. Rodney Minogue has since run a brothel called Tickles in Potts Point, Sydney. He's been done for mid-level heroin dealing as recently as 2015. He's also done some solar panel installation. Craig Minogue staunchly denies any involvement in Prue Bird's case. You can read more about that on his own website if you wish. It's the widely held belief of many police members, both former and currently serving, that Prue's murder was payback in connection with Russell Street. But proving that, especially now with Camilleri being found guilty, is something that seems unlikely. Jenny Bird blames her mother, Julie, for dragging the family into this. Julie and Paul Hetzel both blame themselves. Some people still think Paul Hetzel knows a lot more than he claims and that maybe a guy we've discussed during this episode was the third man on the street that day. And the whereabouts of Prue's body remains unknown to this day. An extremely sad case of another innocent young girl who at some stage was neglected by some of those who should have protected her. And sadly, she and her family too have become victims of something that really had nothing to do with them. And that's it for today's case. Now I'll try and stump up a happy thought for you all. I want to give a shout out to my wife, Amy, for uh, completing her graduate certificate just recently. She's um, uh, a teacher, my wife, and she's, so she's got her uni studies in that, but this year she's undertaken a, a postgrad grad uh, sort of certification, so it's been a, a pretty tricky thing to fit in with me working full-time and uh, doing the podcast sort of full-time as well on top of that, and then she's had to wrangle uh, our two young kids uh, for the better part of this year amidst lockdown, and So it's been uh, pretty full on for her and uh, I'm not sure how she's managed to fit it all in, but she has. So I just wanted to uh, say well done and congrats to her. And that's my happy thought for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast and find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get all of our bonus content. A fresh blooper reel has gone up just this week, making fools of the pair of us, so everyone seems to enjoy those, so uh, feel free to go and check that out. Chloe and I will be taking the next two weeks off to recharge the batteries, but we'll be back with you all after that. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all again soon.